So that trailer's a lot scarier to me than the sermon series is. Just so you know, even though Pastor talked about the damage cave and today's the dark cave, I was like, yeah, I don't do scary movies. So that, that kind of thing I don't see much. But uh, we are going to get into the second week. But if you don't have a Bible to turn to, we're going to 1 Samuel 15 to start. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. The people walking through the aisles have a Bible you can take, you can keep. It's yours, our gift to you. Or you can open your smart device. You can go to version and all the notes and scriptures have been uploaded already. Uh, I have so much exciting stuff to go over today, including some pictures from Israel, which I always uh, love to pull out my pictures like a little grandma of where I've been. And Israel is one of the places, and you'll be able to go with us if you want. February 2021, we are going to Israel. Uh, But last week, Pastor talked about three kinds of hearts in his message on Saul. He talked about the anxious heart, the angry heart, and the altered heart. And heart in Hebrew, actually, the word is lavev. I like the shortened version because actually in Hebrew now today, they use the short version, which is lev. And I think that's easy to remember. Go tell your spouse today, I love you. And now you're Hebrew and you're loving. And so I love you is a good way to remember. In fact, uh, the heart was talked about a lot in the Bible, but there was no word for the brain. They didn't even know, I don't know what they thought was housed up here. I think sometimes we still wonder what's housed up here in some people, but they didn't have a word for the brain or a concept of the brain. They believed, yes, the heart was a physical organ. In fact, there was a man in the Bible named Nabal, and he actually had a heart attack. I never knew this until this past week. He had a heart attack, and it said that he His heart died inside him, he became like a stone. So they definitely believed it was a physical organ, but all Israelites and all biblical authors, so if you're to read the Bible now and you see the word heart in there, like all your heart, well, what they thought the heart encompassed was not, I keep doing this, the heart isn't even this shape, and it's probably on this side, right? But I'm just gonna keep doing this. The heart was where we thought, made choices, and store wisdom in addition to being an organ. Now when I hear about David, who we're talking about today, King David was a man after God's own heart. It means a whole lot more to me now that I know it's about thinking, choices, and wisdom. He wasn't just saying that I'd have a big heart and be loving. And in that metaphor, he was thinking all choices and wisdom. And so it means a whole lot to me, and David is my favorite Old Testament character. There's a couple reasons. I'm gonna start with the most important. He was pulled off of a sheep ranch. He was pulled away from the sheep, and I was taken off a sheep ranch after we lambed 2,000 sheep in April in one year. And that meant that at 9, 10, 11 years old, I was helping lamb. And when you lamb, that means you're helping give you give birth to the lambs. Twins, triplets, they needed assistance when it came to that many babies. So I get it, but I also remember knowing God had something big for me. I knew that I wasn't going, just because I was familiar with afterbirth, did not mean that I was going to be a veterinarian or a doctor. I knew there was something else God had for me. And my goal was to get to the city, Rapid City, population 55,000 people. 
I mean, that's like saying, I'm going to get to Shano someday. Like, <laughs> yes, that was me. I remember knowing that if I could get off the ranch and get to Rapid City, South Dakota, my life would begin. I dreamt of a big life. In fact, I dreamt of a big life so much, I was in the basement of our ranch, and there were wooden pillars that held the house up. I would spin around those uh, to Bruce Sp Springsteen and Huey Lewis in the news, and I would get splinters every time I twirled around them, but I felt I was getting prepared for what God had for me. And then I realized I was a girl, and that actually I wouldn't be Bruce Springsteen or Huey Lewis when I grew up, thank God. Instead, I could maybe be like Tiffany or Debbie Gibson. Any fans? Oh, they're wonderful. I mean, Debbie Gibson still has a perfume, I think, in Walgreens. Like, she was amazing. And so I made my kids listen to Tiffany and Debbie Gibson when I found them on Spotify. Yes, they actually are on Spotify. They were appalled. They were judgmental of me. And, I, and so you know what? I'm a little judgmental of them because Disney Plus just came out, and I just watched what they're geeked out about. I watch Sleeping Beauty, or part of it, and it's colored people sliding across the screen. It's, I'm a little appalled at the one-dimensional and two-dimensional animation that my kids think is awesome, and they're appalled at, at Debbie Gibson and Tiffany. But anyway, we, we have lots of battles, but I knew I had something in store for me maybe like them. And so I related to David that he's this little shepherd boy, he's forgotten over and over again to now, he's gonna find a way out. Another thing that I related with David about is that he had to wait to see the promise of God come to pass. He had someone he respected later turn on him. I relate to that, I've actually had that. You, you may have just encountered that at a job, that suddenly your boss, done. Someone that, that, was, that you looked to turned on you. Another thing is he had to hide and he had to wait to be elevated. We're gonna talk about that today. He messed up, he totally sinned. Been there, done that. Totally sinned, but also totally repented. He was called a man after, after God's own heart. He paid the consequences for his actions, but he also didn't get what he fully deserved. We'll talk about that at the very end. Because you know, there are times that if we got what we really deserved, if I got what I really deserved, I definitely wouldn't be standing up here today. So I relate to David in all times, but the part I relate to him the most is in the dark times. And so I call today's message the dark cave. Let's pray. God, thank you for my friends here that can possibly relate to being in a dark cave just coming out of a dark cave, a time of waiting. God, I pray that today we will see what your turning that the enemy meant for evil into something good, even from that dark cave. In Jesus' name, amen. So I used to be embarrassed of changing jobs and changing churches and moving cities all the time. Like I would look at my kids and think, are people, you know, once we had kids, are people judging how many times we've moved? So I went from wanting to live in big cities and get around to we lived in every big city. And then I got embarrassed of it. Isn't it funny, the very thing we can pray for, then we can start to feel discouraged because I felt like I had this little devil on my shoulder saying, you just keep moving. You have longevity issues. What's your problem? And I knew if I talked to people who had lived in the same house their whole life or in the same two houses their whole life. I thought, of course they're looking and judging me. Of course when, when we moved here seven years ago and we had lived in 13 places, I figured that was a little embarrassing and people were wondering, are we really going to stick it out here? I also remember worrying about my kids when we had 
almost divorced and thought, what are people thinking that we moved our kids around, we almost divorced, they've got to be pitying my little kids. And so as, as recent as seven years ago, I remember being embarrassed and feeling like yet again it was a dark time that we moved somewhere new and all the other times we moved, even though we love new people in new places, it was a dark time. In our selfishness, we almost put our kids through a divorce. And today when we're talking about dark caves, some of you are going through a divorce, have gone through a divorce, and you go, that, this is the hardest thing I've ever experienced. This is the darkest, darkest cave. You may be embarrassed. You may be embarrassed today going, people are saying, really, you're selling your house? Hmm, you haven't found your career yet. Really, you're changing jobs? And all of those things that loom over our head that we say to ourselves or others say to us can put us in a really dark cave. So we're going to pick up where Pastor dropped off last week on 1 Samuel 15. It's really a character study Pastor talked about with Saul and what I'm going to talk about today with David, a character study on two men. Saul was damaged. You may feel damaged, but you may also have been damaged by someone. But David's story encouraged us for hope, and despite, of, despite human evil, God shows us that through David, he will oppose the proud and exalt the humble. So we're going to start off where Saul directly disobeys Samuel. Now, I'm going to show you a little scripture that I think is hilarious and gross. And it's about a king named King Agag. And uh, Samuel was the prophet of the Lord, the Old Testament prophet of the Lord, who went to Saul, the guy Sean talked about last week. And he said to King Saul, you need to go kill the entire kingdom of the Amalekites because they're evil. They're slaughtering their own children. They're, they're crazy over there, which later people were slaughtering their children in Jerusalem because there were cults springing up saying, you need to have blood sacrifice and now it needs to be your own children. I'm shocked that people would even buy into that, but I'm shocked at the things we buy into today, right? And so the Amalekites needed to be taken off the map. So Samuel, the voice of God, because it goes back in the Old Testament, it was voice of God to a prophet to a king that they were assigned to. Today, the voice of God is the Bible. The canon isn't com wasn't complete back then. Now, how do we know we're disobeying the voice of God? We know it through, we have a check in our spirit, we have this feeling. Also, we look at the Bible, and if it's the opposite of what we're doing, that's disobeying. But back then, Samuel the prophet came to Saul to say, you must do this. So what Saul did is Saul went and he killed everything and took everything and destroyed it that he didn't care about, and then he kept anything of worth. That was Saul for you, just getting halfway, half by. And so this is where it picks up in 1 Samuel 15, 32. Then Samuel the prophet said to Saul, bring King Agag to me. Agag arrived full of hope, for he thought, surely the worst is over, I have been spared. But Samuel said, as your sword has killed the sons of many mothers, now your mother will be childless. And Samuel cut Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. I was like, a prophet of the Lord killed a dude and cut him in pieces? Gross, and I will never forget a gag, because that gags me out, and so King Agag. So then we move on to 35. Samuel never went to meet with Saul again. Like, he disobeyed, but he mourned constantly for him, and here's the big line, and the Lord was sorry he had ever made Saul king of Israel. So 1 Samuel 16:1 says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, You've mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Remember that. We're going to talk about it later. Where was Jesus born? 
Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. Samuel sees even, th even through all of these sons of Jesse when he goes to anoint, they're looking the part, but they don't look like the one. And so at 1 Samuel 16 says, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height when he's preparing to see David, for I have rejected them, but the Lord doesn't see the things you see. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You've had your mom tell you that, oh, honey, God looks at the heart, you know, when you're going through your ugly stage, or, you know, when somebody's trying to make you feel good, they're like, there's a verse in the Bible that God sees the inside, and you're like, yeah, it's still, I feel gross on the outside. That's where that verse came from, actually. It had a little bit more meaning there, that David was being seen. So here comes little David, and he's anointed king. But meanwhile, back at Saul's house, just because David got anointed king, just because I was told in a basement God's going to use me for something, doesn't mean poof, it happened. Some of us feel like we've been in a dark cave for 10, 20 years. Sometimes it doesn't always happen like that. So 1 Samuel 16, 15, some of Saul's servants said to him, a tormenting spirit from God back at Saul's house is troubling you. Now pause, because I wonder... Was there a troubling spirit that God sent? Because this says Saul's servants. Who knows if they're lying, if they're blaming it on God. A lot of times we don't get right what, who's done the problem, who's done it. I wonder, though, if God really did send a troubling spirit to Saul so that Saul, it opened up a door for David to be asked to come and play the harp. Because David was known to be able to play the harp. So it says, let us get a, find a good musician to play the harp whenever the tormenting spirit troubles you. He will play soothing music and you will soon be well again. So skip to 1621. So David went to Saul. This is where they intersect and began serving him. Saul loved David very much, and David became his armor bearer. I have worked for people that I became their person, and then suddenly they hate me. You've maybe loved someone, and suddenly you've hated them. The character studies in the intersection of Saul and David is incredible, and that's why we're gonna spend our time looking at it. So King Saul is still in power. Next up, he's facing Goliath, and the Philistines, is who Saul was actually in his original job description supposed to be king to kill. So instead, David's the one to step up and kill, not Saul. I'm not gonna go through David and Goliath. There's even secular books, there's leadership books on David and Goliath. We these days, even if you're not a Jesus person, you talk about the Goliaths and you talk about the Davids. So we're not gonna go into that. But remember last week, Pastor talked about Saul, thought small of himself. In fact, I thought it was hilarious when I saw Pastor up here swinging from some invisible NFL players' arms and I thought, like he came back to the pulpit and I went, did he really do that? Because I saw both legs, like how did he do that? Like he really did a good job on that. Saul thought of himself like that little boy, that little, and yet he's a giant, almost like Goliath. And here comes little David again, just little David. I, res I, I totally relate to that. Here comes little David and he's the one who's gonna be king someday, but Saul and no one knows yet. And he goes and he kills the giant. What Saul had said is whoever kills Goliath will get one of my daughters as their wife and their whole family won't have to pay taxes forever. So no wonder Jesse wanted one of his sons to kill Goliath. So David gets Saul's wife or Saul's daughter as his wife and that's why Saul and David are already like this. But let's jump to 1 Samuel 18 where Saul flips on David. 
It says, when the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistines, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. This was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. This made Saul very angry. What's this, he said? They credit David with tens tens of thousands and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. He didn't know they would be. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Here's a couple little nuggets for you. Those people on the streets were identifying what had happened internally that they didn't even know about, that the anointing had shifted from Saul to David. The mistake that I just made on Jesus Plus Life, it's an episode I do every week, the mistake I made recently is that I took this verse and said it how I've always heard it, and maybe you always have. The one can put 1,000 to flight and two can put 10,000 to flight. So I thought that sounds good, especially if you're in a good marriage, right? Like I had someone ask me, it was on Jesus Plus Life on the episode a few weeks ago, someone said, oh, you and Pastor Sean, you seem like a really good team, you know? And I'm like, well, you know, the Bible says one can put 1,000 to flight and two can put 10. And then I read and researched this for the sermon and went, crud, I totally lied. Totally screwed that up. So here you go. You won't say that anymore. What actually that is saying is that Saul killed his thousands because he could only put an army in place that could kill thousands. But David, with the hand of God on him, two, meaning you and God, can put multiplication factor on that. And that's what that really means. And it also, when it says puts them to flight, it means, you know, kill them, destroy them. So Sean and I are definitely not taking out armies with a machete. But that's what we think it meant. It actually means when you have God, it's tens of thousands. It's that much more important. So Basically, David is on the run now because Saul is jealous, Saul is mad. Saul goes and tries to kill him every chance he gets. Let's uh, go to 24-1. After Saul returned from fighting the Philistines another time, he was told that David, who'd already been on the run, had gone into the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all Israel and went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. We went there this past spring. At the place where the road passes, some sheepfolds pause. I love that David had been prepared as a little sheep farmer, a little sheep rancher, and now where he goes to hide is somewhere that's more familiar, the sheepfolds. Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. Yes, that means he went to the bathroom. Gross. But as it, like, don't we go outside to go to the bathroom? Why would we go in a, I don't understand. Okay. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding further back in the very cave. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with you as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But then David's conscience began to bother him because he had cut Saul's robe. The reason his conscience bothered him is because back in that day, you would wear a robe even as a king. You were to the people, you were like a representation of God. So like the prophets and the priests, you would wear a long robe. So Saul would have had a robe that had tassels at the bottom. So when David snuck up and clipped the bottom of his robe, he was clipping his anointing. That's why his conscience got to him. When we were in Israel, there's the the Orthodox Jews, and I don't think there's any in the room, because I'll offend you when I talk about the little curly cue, the prom curls in the front of the, that they still wear that today. They got their hair curled right here. They also wear ropes, multiple ropes hanging from their waistband so that they, these ropes, like many ropes, 
five, 10, 12 on each side, are hanging so when they walk, the ropes touch their hand and it is a reminder of the anointing, the holiness they need to live in, the purity, that every step they take, they're touching those ropes. So this is, this is still profound. And so when the robe was snipped, the bottom of the hem, David's conscience, because he's a good guy, began bothering him. Verse six, he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed. His friends are going, you are crazy. For the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. After Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came out and shouted after him, my Lord the king. And when Saul looked around, David bowed low. Let's skip to 11. Look, my father, he said. Now, I want you to remember this because the picture I'm going to show you later is going to explain why he waited to yell at Saul. But skip to 11. It says, look, my father, at what I have in my hand. It is a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I'm not trying to harm you and that I have not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting for me to kill me. So when Sean and I were in Israel, and we're going to show you a picture of the cave in En Gedi, when we were in En Gedi, we saw what is the cave David was in. On the backside of this mountain is Jerusalem. Uh, so Saul would have been coming from that area and coming over the mountain and descending down in front. So he probably saw this little cave. And the cave David was in, top right corner, like three quarters of the way up, the little dark hole. It would have fit thousands of people. But from the outside, it looked small. David knew the lay of it. He would have been in there. So then the rest of the troops would have descended all the way down into that valley, probably on each side of the rocks, carefully. And that's why Saul could get away and go to the bathroom as they were taking their time getting down the rocks. So when David waited for Saul to be out of the cave, I'm going to talk to you about it in our second point of the three points I'm going to give you because it's so important. But for now, I want you to ask yourself, have you ever felt like you were put in a timeout? I look at that cave and I go, David was in, like, he could, couldn't have felt more in a timeout. They say seven years passed from the time he was anointed king till when he became king. Do you ever feel like you're in that timeout and you go, God, I don't know why. I don't know what I did. So after Saul goes in, he steps in, he covers his feet, gross, that means he goes to the bathroom, he leaves. Now I want to give you three things we can learn from David's dark cave. First, number one, expect opposition from non-Jesus people. Obviously we know Saul was not a Jesus person, but he should have been. But the reason we know he's not is because he says to Samuel multiple times, the Lord, your God, your God your God. When we don't make it personal, when we don't have a personal relationship, there is no going on my grandma's shirt tails. There's no, I'm going to skim in because I attend church once in a while. When he's not the Lord, our God, we're not going to get there. And if we're looking at other people, and as Saul did, he said, that's your God. Saul had no anointing left because God, Saul would not take God on as his own. There's a couple things we can learn from non-Jesus people. And that is that we need to have our own relationship. We also need to remember that people can only keep their composure and their attempts at love and being kind to you for so long on their own. So when you're in a dark time and you have people around you and it doesn't seem like they're very supportive, 
It might be because they don't have Jesus, because we can't on our own love and keep our composure of kindness for very long on our own. We run out of steam. This, the other thing you can remember about people who are not Jesus people is that they're not gonna give good advice, so be careful. Remember, David was in the cave, and his men said, here's your chance, kill Saul. He had to rebuke them and tell them no. Those friends of his were giving good advice. If you go to your friend who's not a Jesus person and say, this is my dirty, rotten husband, and this is the situation, I promise they're going to say, leave him. If you go to your buddies and you say, my wife's got this, this, and this going on, they're going to be like, why are you wasting your time? That's the peer advice that we get when people are not Jesus people. So David had to look at his men and say, back up 600 of you. I'm not going to listen to you. I know what I'm talking about. The other thing to remember is that the second offense is always the strongest. They were super offended for David that Saul's trying to kill their boy. But that's a whole other sermon for another day. So the second thing we can learn from David's dark cave is number two, expect doubts when you experience delays. Guys, when I was traveling all over the country, moving, actually living in the life I had wanted as a little twirly girl around my basement, I was experiencing delays on like finding my real purpose, finding honestly Green Bay and getting to walk in what I really was called to do, which is to be here. I never thought that we would lead a church in the delays, especially when we were almost gonna get a divorce. I thought, it's over. Like this is the darkest time of all dark times. And we'd gone through some major mess ups in dark times. We'd lost a daughter and yet our divorce seemed as bad or worse than losing our daughter. So don't underestimate what divorce can do to you, your kids, and can be long-term. It, it can be super dark. And so I remember in the delays not realizing God was growing me because when we saw city after city after city, we had to experience all of the awesomeness. And, and now I know without a shadow of a doubt that Green Bay is the greatest city on earth. That's not just because we're stuck here. That's not just because we haven't lived anywhere else and we haven't left the state of Wisconsin in our lifetime. That's because we chose here and God chose for us to be here. I'm so grateful for growing up on a sheep ranch. I'm so grateful for all of the experiences and I'm sure that David was thinking, yeah, I'm not very grateful for this. But it worked out for David in that dark cave to be prepared and grown for the palace. The third thing, that we can learn from David's dark cave is expect and pursue a heart after God. A heart after God will develop or a hard heart will develop. In your dark times, you have two choices. Will I have a soft heart or a hard heart? Some of us have a confused heart and that's okay. That usually can get back to where it needs to be. But expect that in dark times, we can expect to actually pursue God and have a heart that grows. David went on after he was king and after Saul was dead to commit adultery, then have the husband murdered, like this dirty dog, and then he, uh, had, he had a baby with Bathsheba, who he had had the affair with, and then the baby is born but is deathly sick. And so David spreads himself out and he prays, God, please, I know you've done it before, you can do it again. He lays himself on the floor, he prays, his son dies. I think the reason David could get up and not curse God, but still be a man after God's own heart, is because David had gone in a dark cave, almost was killed, came out unscathed, 
So he can go through a dark time losing a child and he can come out unscathed. The reason there's nothing that scares Sean and I anymore at all about life, and I'm not even like, you know, trying to say, devil, let's go, it's on. The reason that nothing makes me nervous anymore is because I feel like we've gone through every dark cave that we could go through. And if there's another one, just like David, he got up, his son died, and he went, been in dark caves before, I can do this too. So David went on, he was a murderer, he was all of that. But what I love about David is even though he wasn't perfect, David kept a heart after God. The other thing that I love about um, life, and you may say this is really weird of me, but I'm kind of a justice person. I love that we live in a world with a God of love and mercy, but also consequence. Some of you are going to go, nope, I'm done there. But I love it. I like fair. And in the Bible, it was fair and just. I also love that in the Bible, there were nuggets that if you miss them um, and skim over them, you won't discover how amazing it is. So I want to look back at a picture, a nugget for you. And uh, this valley, the cave would be further in now, but this valley, those trees that are lined there, so this was is still there, but back when David was in the cave, these trees lined it. These trees are called spina crista, which means Christ's thorns. They're the trees that they used uh, all throughout Israel for the crown of thorns on Jesus' head. So what I love is the parallel between Jesus and David, that the very crown of thorns that would later be put on Jesus' head, and Jesus was called the son of David, I'll talk about that in a second, were the very trees that saved David. And the reason they saved David is because if you look up where David would have been perched or looking over, the reason he shouted out at Saul is because he knew enough about the land, he knew about the thorny patches, that he just needed to give Saul enough time to get down to that area where all the troops were, which those really steep, you can't even tell, they're so steep, the rocks, that a thousand troops would have never been able to kill 600 men and David from that vantage point. So David waited until Saul was far enough away and he said, I have your hem, I didn't kill you. How beautiful that the very crown of thorns are the very trees that also protected David. There are so many parallels between David and Jesus. In fact, 17 verses in the New Testament describe Jesus as the son of David. The title son of David is more than a statement of physical genealogy. Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, was in the line of David, but it's a messianic title. So I want to give you some similarities between Jesus and David. And the reason I'm doing this is because I feel like if we can love and emulate David, who was a man who screwed up, And we can see that Jesus wanted to be paralleled and come from the line of a messed up man, that it will actually grow our heart, it will actually soften our heart and make us like David, like a man after God's own heart. Here's some amazing parallels and similarities. Both David and Jesus were descendants of Abraham and of the tribe of Judah. Both were born in Bethlehem. Both had good parents and other siblings. Both were assigned duties as a shepherd. Both experienced confrontation in the wilderness, David with the lion and the bear, Jesus with Satan. Both were to become king, both died in Jerusalem. Both loved God and their people. Both were rejected by their own people. Both were betrayed by someone close to them. Both were misrepresented by others. David was a man after God's own heart, but Jesus was God's heart. Both reigned in spite of rejection and rebellion of others. Both wept on the Mount of Olives over the tragedies taking place in Jerusalem. 
We were on the Mount of Olives. We looked over the city of Jerusalem. It's amazing. We also saw this valley, and the valley is called uh, Gehenna. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. They wept over that. Jesus was crucified and smelled the burning bodies of children from that valley. I'm going to talk about that in a second. So both also were defeated. They, do, they did defeat their enemies. And get this, both were prepped in a cave. David and Engedi and Jesus was born in a cave in Bethlehem. Knowing this about David and knowing that David was just a mere man and that he was a man after God's own heart makes me want to have David's heart condition. So there's, I'm going to end with three conditions of the heart, three heart conditions. A soft heart that's open to Jesus, a hard heart that's closed off to Jesus, and a confused heart, which can go either way. The prophet Jeremiah believed that the human heart was fundamentally broken. He said the heart of a human is deceitful above all and irreversibly sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah watched a whole generation turn away from God and start sacrificing their children as if it were a good thing. That was the valley leading into Jerusalem. They were sacrificing their children. I stood there and I cried the second time we were in Jerusalem because I realized that valley is where the stench of burning bodies went into Jesus' nostrils while he's dying on the cross. This was just a part of Jerusalem and Israel existence was that people thought they were sacrificing to the right gods by sacrificing their children. And the reason I cried is not because they all died. I cried because I think that many of us sacrifice the soul of our own children today when our heart is hard to God. When our heart is, heart is hard to the things of Jesus and our kids see it, it reproduces a hard heart in them. And that soul sacrifice of our children, when we don't lead the way with a, a heart after God, it's major, it's life or death. So the Hebrew prophets said the only hope for humanity is the total renewal of the human heart. Moses predicted that if Israel was ever going to love their God, their lev would need to be circumcised. That's a surprising metaphor of removing the evil and stubbornness from the human heart. Ezekiel hoped for a day when God would remove the heart of stone and give his people the new heart of soft flesh. And that's a nod to Nabal, the one who had a heart attack. This is similar to Jeremiah's desire and that he said that he hoped God would write the commands of the Torah on the lev of his people. What's the condition of your heart today? Is it soft? Is it open to Jesus? Did the story of David inspire you to be more like Jesus or more like David? Or do you have a hard heart, a closed heart, heart that's closed to Jesus? I don't know if Saul had a closed heart. I think he did, or at best he had a a confused heart. But I do know that Saul had a choice, and we have a choice. So what is your choice today? Will you bow your heads and close your eyes? God, I pray for the people in this room that even as we prepare to admit, to raise our hands to say, I need to soften my heart, or yes, I have a soft heart, or I have a confused heart, but but I need you, Jesus, that you would just prepare our hearts, prepare our lives, God in Jesus' name. So with nobody looking around, heads still bowed, eyes still closed, if you would say, I need Jesus, and the condition of my heart, I can't even speak to that, but I can say that I don't have Jesus, and I need to start with him. In just a second, I'm going to have you raise your hand and make eye contact with me, and then at the end, I'm not going to have anybody come up, 
I'm not gonna center you out. You're not gonna walk an aisle. We're just gonna pray together, everyone in the room, for God to take our heart. So anyone in the room, raise your hand, make eye contact with me if you need to accept Jesus into your life. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This way, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Did I miss anybody? Thank you. So everyone, thank you. Repeat after me with everyone else. Dear Jesus, I give you my heart. I need you. I repent. I admit that I'm a sinner and I'm lost, but I need you and I need you to find me. In Jesus' name, amen. That simple prayer starts something. It does. It starts something when you admit it, when you soften your heart enough to say that. And so if you... If you lifted your hands, even if you didn't, but you said that in your heart, will you fill out the card that I talked about earlier? Check that yellow box that says, I'm choosing to follow Christ. And then after you can tear that off, you can give it at the Welcome Center or the table or put it in the black buckets. We're not done yet, don't leave yet. Uh, but would you pray with me one more time? Because here's my question. Bow your heads one more time. And, and here's the thing I wanna ask ourselves when we already have Jesus. Because in Proverbs 4.23, it says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it and then Psalm 51:10 says create in me a clean heart our God renew a loyal spirit in me and there's some words that jumped out at me that I go Jesus may have my heart but do I guard my heart do I have a clean heart does my heart need to get loyal if any of that rings and speaks to you and you say, I just gotta get my heart softened and realigned. Will you raise your hand so I can pray for you all over the place, thank you. Lord Jesus, I pray for my friends that as you work on our hearts, God, those who just are asking you in for the first time and those of us who have been doing it for so long that our heart has become confused, it's darkened, it's gotten hard and closed off in certain areas. God, I pray that you would soften it, soften it to the fullest. In Jesus' name, amen.